You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from Matthew 3:13 to 17. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, to whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thank you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we take these next moments to turn our attention to the words written here in Matthew's Gospel, we ask... Uh, that you would speak to us. We ask that you'd send your spirit and make these words alive, uh, cutting, uh, words that work in our lives to draw us to you by your spirit, to enlighten our minds as to who you are and who we are in relation to you and all that you call us to be in Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this account that we've just read, uh, Jesus' baptism, is highlighted in all four of the Gospels as the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. All four of the Gospels share this, that it begins with the baptism of Jesus. His baptism serves to set him apart and to send him out into the world in the power of the Spirit. And biblically speaking, This shouldn't come as a surprise, although it does. We kind of wonder what to make of this baptism of Jesus and why it happens. But baptisms, we find, are actually not altogether new in the New Testament. Baptisms have something of a precursor in the Old Testament. What are these baptisms? Baptisms, we find, uh, don't just begin here, but there are ceremonial washings that have already happened throughout the life of Israel. Right? Uh, and, and it was through these ceremonial washings that Israel, we find, set apart priests for their public ministry at the age of 30. So in Exodus 40, for example, we read that Aaron and his sons, as the inaugural priests of Israel, the first priests of Israel, are consecrated as priests in precisely this way. We read, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water, that they may serve the Lord as priests. Washing with water to be set apart for priestly service in Israel. And this, of course, was later extended uh, from Aaron and his sons to the Levites, to others who would then serve in the temple courts. So we find in Numbers, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. You shall, uh, thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. Baptisms. Uh, this, this ritual cleansing, it turns out, biblically speaking, is a ceremonial washing with water that cleanses and sets apart a people for priestly service 
to God. This is the way a washing with water works among the people of God. And actually, according to Paul, the whole people of Israel are set apart this way. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he points to Israel's exodus out of Egypt uh, uh, into the cloud, into, uh, the cloud, through the sea, that this was a kind of baptism. And what happens right following Israel's baptism uh, 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 through the sea is Israel is then called a, nation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood unto God. Right? It's through baptism that people are appointed as God's priests in the world. And then, as I mentioned, we're also told in the Old Testament that a priest in Israel must first reach the age of 30 years old. Okay? And after his baptism, after his washing or sprinkling with water, he was to be anointed with oil, okay, representing the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and was thus ordained for priestly ministry. And here's Jesus now, okay, to the Jewish mind, who know, knows all of this, who knows you know, that a priest needs to be 30 years of age, who knows that in order to be a priest, you're first washed with water, you know, there's a ceremonial washing that happens, a sprinkling with water, and upon this, you're anointed uh, with oil, um, representing the anointing of the Holy Spirit. For a Jewish reader who understands all of this, and then sees Jesus here coming for baptism in the Jordan, and then receiving the anointing of the Spirit, this can be nothing but an ordination service. Baptism here, being Jesus, uh, what we could call his baptismal ordination. And what I believe every gospel account is indicating in highlighting Jesus' baptism right at the outside of his ministry is that this is Jesus' ordination to ministry, to a unique priestly ministry in the world as the true and final priest king. Okay. This is uh, the context in which this is happening. And there are three things that happen here at this baptismal ordination that I'd like to uh, point our attention to, to highlight this morning. First, that in his baptism, in this priestly ordination, Jesus identifies with sinners. Second, that he's anointed with the Spirit. And third, that he is affirmed by the Father. Okay. We see these three things coming together in Jesus' baptismal ordination. First, he identifies with sinners. You can look with me at verses 13 and following. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. So what's this, what's this baptism about? Why is John baptizing, and why is Jesus looking to get baptized in the first place? Well, earlier, uh, what we saw last week in this same chapter, John tells us what this baptism is about. His baptism is called a baptism of repentance. It's about turning from sin and turning to God. This is what repentance is. It's a, it's a change of direction. Or in the Greek, it's a changing of the mind. You've lived one way, and now you're turning another way. And this is what John is calling all of Israel to, is this baptism of repentance, which makes it very odd, of course, that Jesus, who everywhere in the Bible is, uh, comes as the sinless one, the only one not in need of repentance, that Jesus, uh, again, the one who John himself recognizes as the, lamb of, the sinless Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world, that Jesus is now being asked 
to be baptized, or is now asking to be baptized. Uh, this Jesus asking to uh, be identified in the long line of sinners in Israel. Jesus asking to be baptized by John to receive this baptism of repentance. And this stands in stark contrast to what we've just seen of the religious leaders in Israel. The religious leaders who have shown up to watch this baptism and who come into confrontation with John the baptizer. The religious leaders who come as those who are above being baptized in this manner. Here we see Jesus come in great contrast to those leaders who say, well, maybe the people need baptism. You know, maybe, maybe the people, but not us priests. You know, maybe the, maybe the, the, the masses, they could use a baptism of repentance. Uh, but us, we stand as observers. But then here comes Jesus, the teacher of all teachers, the priest of all priests, the one who should be washing all others. <laughs> that, this, that this Jesus comes and says, I need to be baptized. And of course, John's response then is, I need to be baptized by you much less you by me, to which Jesus responds, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does this mean? What does this mean to fulfill all righteousness, uh, to undergo a baptism in order to fulfill all righteousness? Well, Israel's priests, as we've seen, were to undergo this process of consecration, being set apart to serve as priests of the people, washed with water, dressed in priestly garments, anointed with oil, See, the priests of Israel, they needed to be cleansed of their sin. They needed to be made ceremonially clean that they might represent God to the people and represent the people to God, that they might take on this role. And here Jesus is stepping into the shoes of the priests of Israel. He's stepping into their shoes in order to fulfill all, righteous, all the righteous demands of God. He's stepping into the sinner's shoes here, which is... Remarkable. It's remarkable. See, while the religious elites of Jesus' day were turning up their noses at John's call to repentance, Jesus comes to John and requests, again, to be admitted to the long line of Israel's sinners. What's going on here? Well, in this, we find good news of the gospel. That where we fail to acknowledge our sins before God, where we fail to be righteous. Jesus, the righteous one, actually comes and stands in our place. He stands in our place. That where we find ourselves as sinners in need of repentance, Jesus comes and offers repentance for us, for a world in need of repentance and forgiveness. He comes and he stands in the sinner's place. And this is good news, that in Jesus' baptism, he stands with us. He stands with you and with me, is baptized with a baptism of repentance for us, and so fulfills all righteousness. And on that day, when we, when you, when you and I should be standing in the place of the sinner before God, Jesus stands for us and will stand for us and even call us righteous. He offers us his righteousness as one who stands with us. He stands with us, he identifies with us, with you, not only in your humanity, but even according to your need for repentance. Second, we find that Jesus here at his baptism, 
is anointed with the Spirit. You can look with me at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Uh, this scene, again, has been described in a number of ways, as a kingly coronation, as a messianic commissioning, as an ordination service, as I've outlined, Jesus being set apart for priestly or pastoral ministry. And the point of each of these pictures is to say that up to this point, as far as we can tell, Jesus had lived a fairly ordinary life. I mean, of course, in some very extraordinary ways, as the sinless Son of God, but ordinary in the sense that his day-to-day life, his, his experience, looked pretty typical to all outside appearances. Such that, when he eventually launched into his public ministry, people could say, isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he to be this teacher? Isn't he, isn't he one of us? Uh, even his own family not believing in who he was. Right? Think about that, that the sinless son of God lived such an ordinary human existence that people had to question whether or not he could actually step into this role as, as Messiah, as priest of Israel. Right? Isn't this just the carpenter's boy? In all of his 30 years up to this point, we hear of no miracles, no great following, no great teaching. And it's only after his baptism that all of this changes. Which is, again, why all four of the Gospels highlight his baptism as the inaugural event launching Jesus into his public and priestly ministry. But we could still ask, why all this? Um, Why all the events that happen within this baptism? Why the breaking open of the heavens at this point and the descent of the Spirit? Why? If Jesus was already the Son of God, the divine Son, the divine King, and so, in fact, one with the Spirit... Why the dissension of the Spirit? It does seem a little bit odd, doesn't it? Did Jesus not have the Spirit before his ordination, uh, before his baptism? Does the man Jesus really need to be anointed with the Spirit? And of course, the answer can only be yes. (laughs) Yes, he did. And this tells us something about the man Christ Jesus, that his entire earthly ministry was to be done with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was the anointing of the Holy Spirit that moved him out to engage the world in the way that he did, with all of the miracles, with all of the teaching, even going to the cross. All of this done in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so we might ask, an interesting question, in what power did Jesus resist temptation? In what power Did the man, Christ Jesus, live by faith, perform miracles, endure suffering, and offer himself up on the cross? And what power? Did he do this as the second person of the Trinity, as uh, as the divine son, kind of uh, overriding any earthly limitations in order to just uh, exercise his divinity on his humanity or through his humanity? Listen to what um, one of the great Puritan theologians and pastors, John Owen, writes says, the Holy Spirit was the immediate operator of all divine acts of the Son himself. Whatever the Son of God wrought or accomplished in, by, or upon the human nature, he did it by the Holy Ghost, who is his Spirit. Okay, that's a bit of a dense quote. what's, um, What's Owen saying here? He's saying that the divine Son 
did not alter, act on, or act through the human nature of Christ. In other words, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, at every point, acted truly and consistently as a man, as a human. He thought as a human, desired as a human, learned as a human, needed as a human, performed miracles as a human, in full reliance on the Holy Spirit. Just as all the judges and prophets before him had worked wonders as humans in the power of the Holy Spirit, so did Jesus. Although, of course, he did these things with unique authority as the sinless Son of God. It may be helpful for us to remember at this point, what was Jesus' chief designation, his chief title, that he received in his ministry. Jesus Christos, Christ, a Greek translation of Mashiach, the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the one anointed with the Spirit of God. Jesus, the truly Spirit-filled man. This is who Jesus is revealed to be in his ministry. As Jesus puts it at one point in Matthew But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. By the Spirit of God that he casts out demons. As one um, theologian uh, in the the Dutch tradition, Herman Boving, puts it, he says, "If uh, if humans in general cannot have communion with God except by the Holy Spirit, then this applies even more powerfully to Christ's human nature. It's quite an observation. An affirmation of Jesus' full humanity says, If humans in general cannot have communion with God except by the Holy Spirit, then this applies even more powerfully to Christ's human nature. And we might stop here and consider, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit as a man to move out in the world uh, in full communion with God, with the Father, according to his humanity, uh, was sent out in the power of spirit by God, how much more us, you and I, in our humanity. In what power do we resist temptation, live by faith, do good deeds, endure suffering? Only by the Spirit of God. Only by the Spirit of God. It's only by the Spirit of God that in our humanity we experience full communion with God. So we might consider in whose power are we living? The Holy Spirit, let's not forget, is the gift of the Father to his children. Not just one of the gifts, not just one gift among many. He is the gift. As Jesus puts it, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, you'd expect gifts of all kinds to those who ask. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the gift of the Father to his children, the Spirit, the gift that sustained and empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry, the gift offered to all who will repent, despairing of our own abilities to do good. This is the gift that the Father offers to you and to me, the gift of his Holy Spirit to empower us to live fully human lives as we ought to live, that we would be those who depend on the Spirit for all of life. 
So first we've seen at this baptismal ordination, Jesus identifies with sinners. Second, we've seen that he is anointed with the Spirit. And third, we'll now see and consider that he is one who's affirmed by the Father at his baptismal ordination. Uh, verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. My beloved Son, says the Father. This again is, is striking, that Jesus is identified here as the Son of God. And yet it all raises some challenging questions. That if Jesus is the Son of God, why does the Father have to tell him here and announce this and offer these words of affirmation that he's the Son? Did Jesus not already know? Didn't he already know? If Jesus is the one with whom the Father is well pleased, why does the Father have to tell him that he's the one with whom the Father is well pleased? Didn't he already know? Didn't he already have the full assurance and confidence of who he was in the world? There's this amazing, this amazing statement in, in Luke's gospel, which says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus grew in wisdom. That's, that's quite something. We, maybe we don't think about Jesus this way. Uh, somebody who grew uh, from infancy to toddlerhood to uh, childhood up to, to adulthood. The Son of God in human flesh, coming to know things he didn't already know, and yet, in a sense, knew all along. It's this deep mystery. And what we find in the Gospels, and here in Matthew 3 in particular, is that Jesus, though he was the divine Son of God, he was also the human Son of Man, fully human. And as a man born under the law, he too had to grow in wisdom and knowledge. Uh, this very much runs against a certain vision of Jesus as uh, something like Superman, a Superman figure, who looks human, but really is not fully human, because he's more than human. Right? That's not the picture that we're given in the scriptures. Uh, in Christ, we're given someone who is fully God, and yet at the same time, fully, nothing less than man. Okay, fully human. Well, to press the point, according to our passage, as far as we can tell, the man Jesus wasn't born with a complete sense of his self-identity, but had to learn it as a man. As a man, fully human, he had to learn over the years who he was. And certainly this would have involved uh, input from his parents, but also, and perhaps most significantly, from the scriptures, learning his identity, his identity, his messianic identity from the scriptures of Israel. And it was in these scriptures where Jesus saw his own identity disclosed where he learned his identity and his role as the Messiah, as suffering servant, as man of sorrows, as friend of sinners, as son of God, as the fulfillment of the law. And if that's the case, if Jesus really is fully divine and fully human, and not some half-human, half-God, if this is the case, we hear these words differently at Jesus' baptism. His whole life, Jesus has been learning the magnitude of his identity and calling. And here, he's on the cusp of being sent out into public ministry in the world. Ordained as the true and final priest king. And it's here, at his baptism, that he looks up and sees the heavens open. Torn open. Sees the spirit descend on him. And hears aloud, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. And you can bet that these words from the Father to the Son, that is baptism, were words of deep affirmation. 
Uh, words that Christ, according to his humanity, needed to hear from the Father in order to send him out in the power of the Spirit. The man Jesus it was fitting for him to hear words of affirmation from the Father in order to be sent out in the power of the Spirit. Now, to conclude, we've seen that Jesus' baptism first, in his baptism, he identifies with sinners. He identifies with us in our need and call to repentance. He stands in the place of the sinner, becomes sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Jesus does. He comes all the way down. And this is, of course, good news to you and to me, uh, to all here who wrestle with sin, who aren't all that we know we ought to be, that Jesus doesn't stand aloof. He doesn't stand, uh, stand far off from us in our, in, uh, in our sin. But he comes down and steps into this long line of sinners and identifies with us in our call to repentance. It's quite powerful. That God made flesh comes and identifies with sinners. Second, we find that he is anointed with the Spirit, ordained as the true and final priest of God, but a priest who would, in the end, not offer an animal sacrifice, but offer his own life. Offer his very life for us. Sacrificing his own life, that we might have life in and through him. And third, he's affirmed by the Father as one who needed to hear these words. This is my Son, whom I love with whom I am well pleased. Wherever you're at this morning in your journey of life and faith, consider this, that Jesus identifies with you in your places of need. He took your sins on his shoulders and carried them to the cross. And because Jesus so identified with sinners, and because Jesus and the power of the Spirit went to hell and back for us, now we too can hear the words of the Father for us, for you. Words of affirmation from the Father. You are my son. You are my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased with you. This might sound striking to some of you. How can God possibly be well pleased with me in my own sin? And that's precisely what the good news is. That God, the author of life, who hates sin, can look on you and I, even in the depths of our own sin, and say, in Christ, I am well pleased with you. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're mine. I've made you mine. In and through, through my son, you've been made mine. And I'm pleased with you. I love you. I'm for you. Not because you've earned your way, but because Christ has stood in your place. And by grace, through faith, you've been cleansed, forgiven, accepted, adopted into his family, even anointed with the Spirit, and commissioned as his royal priesthood in the world, and affirmed by the Father. This is good news. Let's pray. Our Father, in the baptism of Jesus, we see many things of who you are who Christ is, and who we are in him. We see many things even about our own baptisms, about a word of affirmation that we hear in the cleansing waters of baptism, a word of commissioning, of ordination as your royal priesthood in the world. Father, we ask that you would allow these words of the Father's affirmation of Jesus' identification with us to sink deep into our hearts in a manner that would change us, transform us to be your agents,
of transformation in the world in great need. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.